before you're seated this morning, we do turn our attention to this scripture passage. I love the book of Acts, you all. I love the book of Acts. And I love chapter 16, for in chapter 16, there is a lot going on. So this morning, we're going to read from Acts chapter 16, not just because it's one of my favorites, because we're seeking for word from the Lord. We're going to be reading uh, verses 6 through 12, and there's a lot of words, a lot of cities in here, so bear with me, okay? Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 12. Let's listen for the word of the Lord. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then, coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mesa to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia and northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I know you're just really super impressed that I got through those words, right? <laughs> right. Today we are uh, continuing our series uh, that we're titling, Nope. It's in the series that we're looking at uh, different thoughts or ideas. One, is, one author calls them half-truths that are often attributed to God or the Bible or our faith. Uh, I don't believe that any of these half-truths, these nope statements, are intended or were intended to harm. Usually to do just the opposite, but the problem is that more often than not, over time, they do cause harm. They uh, often ingrain or establish broken loops or stories that we claim, that we hold uh, quite often over time with little thought. From broken narratives come broken lives and dreams and ideas about who God is and how we know God. This morning, our phrase is, when God shuts a door, he always opens a window. Ever heard that? Ever used it? You can raise your hands, friends. It's all right. Um, it's, you know it's not in the Bible. I've done a Google search. It's not in there. You won't find it in the pages. The phrase actually finds its closest home uh, in the words of Alexander Graham Bell. You know the telephone guy? My family knows him really well. My mom and dad both retired from the phone company, so we know this guy. And he said, when one door closes, another opens. But we often look so long and so regretfully upon, upon the closed door that we do not see the one which is open for us. Pretty smart guy. But even if he invented the telephone, he's not scripture. Even though this phrase isn't in scripture, though, I have to tell you, it's much closer to a, a full truth than any of the other phrases that we're going to be exploring in this phrase. I've stumbled on a, a reality of this truth several times in the course of my life. I bet you have too. Even though it's not scripture isn't really the problem, uh, though we probably shouldn't quote it as if. The real issue is the problem that this statement 
is often built upon or it grows into. The problem is that open windows and closed doors often create confusion around one very not so simple thing, the will of God. In 1993, when my aunt died, we couldn't believe that this woman who touched so many lives was no longer in our life. I told you last week about the funeral, about how the service was over. We heard statements that they caused deep pain in our lives. The one that we heard over and over again was, well, it must have been God's plan. I clearly remember walking from the small pond on that church's parking, uh, that, that church's property where her ashes were sprinkled and seeing my uncle and my cousins and her father and mother and my grandma and mom and, and thinking, how could this be God's will. How could this be God's plan? Open windows and closed doors. They're an invitation for something, certainly. Something that is new. Something that creates opportunity. Something that brings expectation. And I love opportunity and expectations and options. But the idea that everything happens for a reason, well, that doesn't create a lot of hope for people. In many ways, it blames God for a lot of really awful events. Everything happens for a reason can really be something for a lot of Christians who, well, they, they link into. I heard, well, that's gospel truth, preacher. Yep, that's spot on. Everything happens for a reason. Really? Does that mean that God's will is behind cancer or the death of a child or rape or genocide or war? Well, but God uses those things. That's what that Paul guy said, right? Is it? Well, for me, that's a little bit problematic. And I would guess for many of us, it's problematic too. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but I want to start with scripture. It is, after all, our foundation. Did you know that God being behind doors or windows is only found in two passages of scripture? The first is found in Revelation chapter 3. Here Jesus is writing to a specific church, the church of Philadelphia, and he says, The one who has the key of David, what he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. That's interesting, but not really helpful for our conversation. The second passage is found just a few verses later, same chapter. This time Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and he says this, probably a verse you're familiar with. Look, I stand at the door and... Knock, if you hear my voice, open the door. I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Now that statement, that statement is Jesus' plea to be allowed entrance to the living room of our life. He doesn't want to stand outside and observe. He wants to have a meal with us, to commune with us. That's interesting and that may very well be helpful for this conversation. Only other place where a door or a window statement could be implied is this passage I read a minute ago. Paul has been on this missionary journey. He's telling everybody about the gospel of Jesus. He's been all over Asia Minor. He is looking for opportunities, and he's going in one direction. We read the Holy Spirit prevented them. So what does Paul do? He sits in a corner, and he gripes and complains, and he moans, right? Because God shut a door? No, that's not what he does. He goes another way. And again, the Spirit of Jesus, we're told, does not allow them to go there. And so again, he sits on his hands, and he goes, woe is me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me, right? Right? Oh, there you are. It's good to see you. Good morning. No, he didn't say that either. They changed course again. Paul that night goes to bed. And he has a dream. And he has this dream of a man who convinces him, you've got to cross the water, bring the gospel to Europe. Now, most of us are all of European descent. So this is good news for us. This is where the gospel starts to reach into us. We're 
closed doors. Where, where doors closed, where windows open, kind of feels that way, doesn't it? It does seem from this passage that God can prompt his followers towards certain encounters or, or experiences. I bet, like you, we've had many times in our life where we have been intending to do something and felt very strongly that we should turn and go the other way. Anybody else other than me? Sometimes I've heeded that prompt, not always. When I have, God's usually showed me something that I might have missed, an encounter or a relationship that was deepened. Now, to my knowledge, I've not avoided death or car accidents. I wasn't punished when I ignored that prompt. But I have wondered, what did I miss? Is there something there that God wanted to invite me to see or place to bless. I think these kind of things happen, but I'm also really careful not to count on them. I'm a big NCIS guy. A friend of mine told me once that only old people watch that. He's no longer my friend. <laughs> the leader of NCIS in Washington is that no-nonsense, demanding, very precise Leroy Jethro Gibbs. And Gibbs is a hard nut to crack. He's a bit of a loner, but his door is always open to his team who routinely drop in and process life with him. What I love most about Jethro is his list of rules. Does anybody know what rule 39 is? There's no such thing as a coincidence. I think there's a lot of life that happens around us, but coincidences are a whole other thing. I think God offers prompts to us, and I think God does this for a lot of different reasons. But not all prompts, not all feelings, not all squiggles in our tummies are necessarily divine appointments. Some of those are sensations that can be attributed to exhaustion or fatigue or stress. Others could be bad pizza. <laughs> I do think, though, God certainly can and does interact with his followers to bring, uh, bring life in different circumstances. Not all of them are things that will end up in movies, but basic moments where God life leaks out into someone else's day. That afternoon as we sat in the living room after my aunt had passed away, we were all at the point of complete numbness. My little cousin, who was about three at the time, maybe four, walks up, sees us all being very quiet and forlorn, and he goes, well, she was fun while she lasted. <laughs> Sometimes God is inviting us into something beyond the natural. Sometimes we're being invited into something other. But notice, I said sometimes, I, early in my ministry, I worked with uh, teenagers, college students, and young adults. And there was often a common theme I would hear for them in these moments when I was allowed to enter into their world, their thoughts, their worries, their concerns. The most common burden that I encountered with them was this one question, what is God's will for my life? The question came in the form of, should I date this person or should I marry that person? It's questions of career choices and spring break trips or mission trips. Do you know what I found um, that teens and college students and young adults aren't alone with this question. God's will is a big concern for a long list of people. I think one of the biggest reasons it's such a big deal is that Christians oftentimes, especially in our culture, live with this fear of missing out on what God wants for us. See, we, we have almost bought this underlying narrative uh, that says God is up to something and, and we got to know what it is. 
Uh, the story says that God is kind of in the business office of heaven and he's micromanaging every little detail of life and therefore it becomes our job to discover what the will, the plan God has for our life. God appears in these stories to be hiding that perfect plan and we then become tasked with stumbling through the road of options that will either disappoint or please God in the end. We don't really know. It's, it's there and it's up to us to figure out what God's will is. And once we do, then we'll have that life abundant. I want to carefully say this to us this morning. I believe this approach to God is a bad narrative. It's a narrative that for many creates a constant state of worry and anxiety. It creates a need to look under every rock and behind every tree for the hidden mysteries of God. Many go from seminar to seminar and study to study, seeking this new insight that will lead them to finally being able to please God and obtain the direction that they so desperately need. In effect, our searching for God's will and God's plan may indeed become a ver the very idol that keeps us from God. That one will hit you later. Personally, I, I don't think God is into hiding from us. I also think God wants us to know this will of God's, but, but maybe knowing God's will is much different than what we have learned and the stories that we have been ingrained with. In 1517, there was a monk who walked up to the doors of the church of Wittenberg, and he posted or nailed right there on the door 95 statements or contradictions that he had with the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Martin Luther didn't actually begin the Reformation, but he certainly was the catalyst for that change. The Reformation was about church abuse, but it was also about authority. It was also about sovereignty of kings and nations and, and who gave that authority. And so for the next hundred years or so, the church fractured and reacted to the fight truly for control and authority and then who claimed to have that control. That's what a lot of that was about. So in the 1540s, there was a Swiss lawyer and theologian named John Calvin who began to share his reactions to Catholicism. He published his great work at a very young age titled The Institutes of Christian Religion. For Calvin and his Swiss countrymen, sovereignty rested not ultimately with the say of a pope or an emperor sanctioned by the pope, but by God's very self. For Calvin, God was sovereign. God was completely and totally providential. His will was precise and God was immutable or unchanging in that will. For Calvin, God's will ordered all of the universe and its working right down to the very seconds that the sun rose and the sun set. Sovereignty of God determines every action in Calvin's theology. This idea is also called determinism, or in its less flowery language, fatalism. This states that God is the cause of everything that has ever occurred, that is occurring and will occur in the future. God is actively willing all things to happen. While the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church believed the Protestants to be wrong, Calvin believed it was the will of God to purify his church. God's will was actively causing both the Reformation and the action around it. Now, there's a logical conclusion for Calvin's determinism. 
The question that rises up for me and for many others is, what does Calvin do with the atrocities of life? If God wills the Reformation, had God willed the brokenness of the Pope? Or the church? Had God willed the violence that came out of that reformation? Had God caused wars? Was God behind cruelty and evil? Did God will pain and suffering and and cancer for Calvin? Simply the answer was, yeah. His theology has permeated much of Western Christianity. Now in American culture, we reject the idea that we don't have freedom, that that there is this, this will that's pushing us into a direct uh, into direction. But in terms of theology, it's, a silent, it's silently guarded as the ultimate right answer. Well, God's got it. It'll be all right. We, skirt, we squirm with that statement. We squirm with the statement said to 13-year-old little Jimmy at Aunt Connie's de- uh, death that it was part of God's plan. But deep down, we want there to be some kind of meaning behind such an awful event, don't we? No. <laughs> Man, I hope that gets on the recording. But this will thing of God leaks into other areas of our life. Think about it. Ever prayed that God would intervene in a basketball game? (laughs) That's a better laugh than the first one. I like that. Ever seen an athlete cross themselves before taking a swing or shooting a shot after the win? Did God really shine on our team and not theirs? Does God really care who wins the Super Bowl? I've heard some Christians speak this way regarding elections. We think God's in the midst of it as long as our person wins. But when it's the other way, it was a work of evil and God's people have forsaken him and his will. By the way, I've heard that from both Democrats and Republicans, so hold your letters. (laughs) The logical conclusion for Calvin, which he held, was that God's will was so perfect and said that God had even already chosen who would be in heaven and who would be in hell. If this is a problem for you, congratulations, you're not alone. Wesley rejected the idea of determinism and held that throughout Scripture we see people, God's people, rejecting God's will and God's decrees over and over and over again. We see a people who are told what is best, and yet they go, no, I'll pass. But we see God in the midst of that rejection continue to love and to woo them back into relationship with him over and over and over. These pages are filled with those stories. If determinism is on one side of the gap, well, the other side is something called deism. Deism says God started it all up and then stepped back and has nothing to do with anything. Deism says God cannot interact. God cannot engage with the world. Some deists even say that the miracles in Scripture are aberrations or illusions or just downright lies. Nudges don't happen because God's, he's hands off. The will of God is that some, at some point the gears will wind down and the experiment will stop, either with perfection achieved, some kind of utopia, or we're going to nuke ourselves into oblivion. Scriptures don't jive with either of these, not with deism and not with hard determinism. God speaks from the beginning, interacts from the very first story in the garden with his creation. From from the very first moments, God is in relationship. Throughout the narrative, God engages and interacts and shows up to God's, his own people. For some, this is mythology, a story that helps guide us. For some, even Jesus, the historical Jesus, is the far cry from the Jesus of the church, For many, Jesus is just a good man who show us maybe the way to God, but wasn't really God in the flesh who moved in the neighborhood. After all, God's hands off. Why would God be in the middle of it? The two extremes, 
both exclude a lot. They ignore a huge section of Scripture. They don't take into account the full revelation of God that pours from these pages. They they each proof text their way through the book. In fact, they make the book say what they want the book to say, and that ends up being more about ideology than it is about exploring the story of God. Both deism and determinism are attempts to understand God's will. For one, all is already ordered and neat and set in course, and if that's true, human responsibility is unnecessary. Who cares what my cholesterol is, right? If I have to live ethically or morally, God's already figured it out. But if the opposite is true, then God is incapable of meeting us in our needs and in our hurts. God is distant, and we have to muddle our way through until the gears fall off. But what if both have taken an element of truth at the expense of the others? What if in God's sovereignty and providence, God still allows for human responsibility? What if the focus of God's will actually isn't on me, but it's on him? What if knowing God's will wasn't mysterious, but simply being known and being with God? In the the prayer book of the Bible, Uh, It's called the Psalms. One author says this, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. That sounds like determinism, but what I love is that um, that translation doesn't get what uh, others do, particularly the King James. I don't quote the King Jimmy very often, but every now and then they got it. And this is what the King James says, I will guide you with my eye. What in the world does that mean? Well, the idea is that of closeness, being so near to our guide that walking with him is as easy as seeing what he sees. God's guiding, God's will in our lives is about intimacy. It's about being close to the God of the universe. You know the God of the universe is interested in you? That's pretty cool. When I was a kid, we had a blessing on a a shelf in my house that read this. May the two of you be so close that when one cries, the other tastes tears. That's closeness. That's the idea of God's will for our life, that we would be so near to God that a question of God's will isn't, what's it for me, but what are you up to? What is God seeing and how can I see it with God? We know and learn from Scripture that God has a plan. We learn that God has invited you and I as followers of Jesus to be part of that plan. God does have a way for you and me to live and move and have our being. But like the Israelites, there's also room for us to refuse that path all the time. Do you want to know what God's plan or will is for your life this morning? Anybody interested? Stay close with him. Let him guide you with his eye. Become connected in such a way that it's not about uh, the set of instructions that you need from Ikea to build your cabinet. That's not God's will. If it is, it's terrible. Ever built something from Ikea? Instead, be close to God. Walk with God. Experience those moments when you're that, that have that closeness and connection where you know what's coming. From intimacy with God, we hear the Holy Spirit's whisper to our souls. From a place of intimacy God, with God, the word lightens up and speaks to us. From a place of intimacy, it's when doors and opens that are shut, or doors and windows that are open or shut truly become opportunities that can lead to brand new experiences. Paul does say to the church at Rome, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to their, his purposes. But Paul doesn't say... God makes all things happen. Instead, 
Paul says in that verse, seems to me anyway, to be an invitation for the followers of Jesus to see what God can do as we walk hand in hand with him to the challenges we face. I will never believe because of my time with God, because of my time with the Word, because of my time with the Spirit, because of my time with others who've poured into my life that God caused my aunt to have cancer. But I also know that I am in large part the man, husband, follower of Jesus and pastor I am today because of her, because of her life, even because of the way that she died. She invited me to lean into God. God did use my aunt, her life and her death to bless a lot of people. Hundreds of people came to faith because of her. How many more will know that abundant life because she pointed me to him? I don't believe that we learn from this book and from our interactions with the Spirit that God's will is some hidden diagram that we have to seek out in order to find control. Instead, God's invitation to know His will is simply come and be with me. Know my love, know my grace. Walk with me in the midst of what's going on. See what I can do. I used to tell my church on a fairly regular basis, I would get up and I would say in front of them, much like you would as you go to a recovery ministry, hi, my name is Jim and I'm a control freak. And I would wait for them to go, hi, Jim. God's will is oftentimes an invitation for those of us control freaks to gain control. God is inviting us to walk with them, to see with God's eyes, to know God in the midst of even the darkest spots. Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious and loving God, we thank you. We thank you for meeting us this morning and for speaking over us and speaking into us. And Father, as we walk away from this sermon and this time of listening, we want to continue to listen for the prompts of your spirit. Lord, where there have been folks in this room who have heard and who have been brought to deep places of pain, some atrocity was God's will for them. Lord, would you provide the, the gracious, incredible bomb of healing that you give to your children. So you remind us that your will isn't some hidden thing out there that we have to measure up to. That's not grace. Would you remind us that your longing for us is to be close, to take cool walks with you in the garden as Adam and Eve did. Would you remind us, Lord, that, that there are prompts that you'll use in our lives. But help us not be so driven to find those prompts that we miss you. God, for those of us this morning who are looking for that next piece of direction, that next step that we're to take, instead of looking for the outcome, Lord, may we look to you. May we be drawn close to your heart. May we see with your eyes. May we step into the work that you already, Jesus, we love you. We honor you and we give you thanks for your presence and for the empowerment to leave this place and be about your kingdom work. We pray all of this in your precious and holy name. All God's people said.